0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,107 of our trek to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we are continuing with our ongoing series of messages that I delivered to Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This first series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapter 5-7. through 7. I pray that it will be a conduit for your learning and encouragement in your life. appreciate Susan helping out this morning with the children's message, and thanks, guys, for being attentive. I think Susan did a better job than I might be doing this morning, so at least you got that portion of the message, so appreciate that. do appreciate everyone being here today as we continue on our series of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse, or Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter seven, and today we're going to talk about a Christian's righteousness, part two. As I mentioned last week, I started out was going to cover the entirety of Matthew chapter five verses seventeen through forty-eight, and realized that that would be a futile attempt to get anything done in less than an hour. So we're splitting this lesson up today, and this is the spirit of the law. And today we're going to cover Matthew chapter five verses thirty-one through forty-eight. So the ha- second half. Of what we began last week. And as we're continuing this week on the subject of right living or Christian righteousness, you remember as we've gone through these, now I think this is our fifth message on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was considered the closest thing to a manifesto of all of Christ's teaching as citizens of of God's kingdom. And I hope that you've caught on that as believers, we're part of a new kingdom. And we're citizens of that kingdom. And if we're going to effectively serve our roles as citizens, we must follow the proclamation that Christ gave to us. That manifesto, of how to build his kingdom. And if we were in the army, as Buddy was and his, and his wife Chelimo is, we have Kip with us for three weeks, they were in the army, and when the army is given orders, they're considered their marching orders. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, is an excellent analogy for those teachings because, as the old children's song says, we are in the Lord's army. And I'd sing it for you, but probably better that I didn't. But it's a, it's a good illustration of our role as citizens of God's kingdom. But instead of violence, our weapons are the character traits and the beatitudes as they're applied through us, being salt and light, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. And not to beat a dead horse, although I understand that it's safer to beat a dead horse than a live one. What we've learned in previous weeks, Christ came to establish a Christian counterculture because the world is upside down. And we as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, if we're building God's kingdom here on earth, we're going to turn that upside down culture right side up so that they'll understand what the kingdom of God really is and what it means. And so far, Jesus has spoken of the Christian characters and the Beatitudes and how we're to take on those character traits and how by doing so, we can influence modern, modern culture and we truly can become The salt of the earth and the light of the world. The salt and light are manifested in right living, which what we consider good deeds. When we think of doing living right, we we think about doing good deeds to others. And last week we did cover Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen through thirty, and that was the first three teaching lessons, which appear in that section of Matthew chapter five, which we'll finish up today. So this week we'll focus on Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 48. And if you remember, last week I mentioned the entire passage is broken down into seven lessons to learn. And these seven lessons, again, are teaching about the law. Now, when we talk about teaching about the law, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were covered by the law. They were to obey the law. But Christ, his purpose on earth was to come to fulfill that law in a way that the law could never do. So it was teaching about the law. Then we went on to teaching about anger. Last week, we also talked about teaching about adultery or lust. And you remember, in that teaching, although it focused on adultery, it talks about trying to obtain anything that's not rightfully ours to have. And we fall into that category in many areas of our lives. This week, we're going to move on to teaching about divorce, teaching about keeping our promises or vows, teaching about revenge, and lastly, teaching about how to love our enemies. And if you missed last week, you can go to PutnamChurch.org and watch the message. And we also have that posted on our Facebook page, our Putnam Church Facebook page. And if you'll bear, bear with us in some of the technical issues, last week's message we didn't have any microphones on during the children's message or the communion. So if you watch it online, you won't hear any sound during those two times. But we're learning, and hopefully we'll, we'll get everything, all those technical issues, straightened up. With that said, let's move on to our fourth teaching, teaching about divorce, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And John has it here. I appreciate John cleaning up my slides a little bit so they're a little easier to read this week. So read along with me. I'm using the New Living Translation, which I use for my personal devotions. But I thought it applied well in our teaching last week and this week. You have heard the law that says, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. <clears throat> Now, this fourth lesson about divorce follows a previous lesson about adultery and lust. And this is sort of a natural sequence. As you t- see the teachings that we go through last week and this week, they sort of dovetail into each other. One builds on the next. And so often, failing to learn the lesson number three about faithfulness in marriage then leads us to lesson number four, which may ultimately end up in divorce. And under certain conditions, Jesus now says remarriage remarriage by a divorced person is equivalent to adultery. But we don't want to lose our focus here because I've been under a lot of inappropriate teaching about this passage. The passage here, Christ's emphasis is on fidelity in marriage. He's saying that the Pharisees of his day in previous ages got focused on the wrong point. And I confess a reluctance to even attempt to explain these verses. First I understand that it is only by the grace of God that He's provided me with a wonderful and understanding wife with Paula. I praise the Lord for that every day. And I believe Paula has the same perspective, at least most of the time. Divorce is a controversial and complex subject, and a subject that touches people's emotions at the very deepest level. And there's almost no unhappiness so distressing than an unhappy marriage. And my heart aches for anyone that has to endure that or go through it. Although I believe it's God's ideal plan for most cases not to divorce, In no way am I making a judgment to anyone who has gone through it because I know each situation is very different and very personal. And we understand from this passage that the Pharisees and the religious teachers looked for an excuse to justify their actions. They were throwing the letter of the law into Jesus' face and saying, well, Moses said we can write a certificate of divorce. We can all rationalize about anything that we choose to and find scriptures to back up our decisions, but that's not how we want to approach the decisions in our lives. Our Lord's reply to their question was in three parts. Revealing, and we want to consider them separately and in order, in which he spoke. In each, Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees' focus and justification. See, Christ wasn't saying that there aren't certain situations where divorce is acceptable or granted, but he's saying the way the Pharisees were looking at the situation was wrong. The Pharisees were preoccupied with the justification of divorce. Jesus was focused on the institution of marriage and its original purpose. Their question was so framed to try to draw Jesus out on what he considered to be legitimate grounds for divorce. But Jesus turns the tables on him, on the original command from the Garden of Eden. From the beginning of creation, marriage is a divine institution by which God makes permanent two people who become one flesh. The second point that they tried to refute Jesus on, the Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce as a command. Jesus said it was a confession or a concession due to hardness of their hearts. The Pharisees have got, were so, had gotten so off base following the letter of the law because Moses says, yes, there is situations where you can write a certificate for divorce. And there, they have flipped that to the point where they're saying, well, Moses commanded it. And that's not what Christ wanted us to focus on. The Pharisees' garbled version of the Mosaic provision was typical of the Pharisees' disregard for Scripture and what it said and implied. The emphasis giving, they emphasized giving a divorce certificate as if it was a central part, essential part of the Mosaic provision. A passage which wasn't part of the Sermon of Mount but came later in Matthew as Jesus dealt with the same subject. in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus replied, "Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts." but it was not what God had originally intended. And that's what I think all of us would agree, that that's not what God has originally intended. How then did Jesus respond to the Pharisees about the regulation of Moses, that Moses granted a permission to do so? He attributed it to the hardness of people's heart, and any time a relationship breaks down, Either on one side or the other, or both, then it's usually because we've made decisions or taken actions that are not the best to make or the best to take. Jesus did not deny the law from God through Moses. He implied, however, that it was not the divine instruction, but only divine concession to the human weakness. Jesus told the Pharisees that there that it was the reason that Moses allowed them for a divorce, but then he immediately referred again to God's original purpose, saying, from the beginning, it was not so. So even with a divine confession, in principle, it's inconsistent with the divine intentions from the beginning of of creation. And the third point here under this teaching is, the Pharisees regarded divorce so lightly, and Jesus took it so seriously, that with only one exception, in this particular verse, he called for all remarriage after divorce adultery. But you have to understand where this teaching is coming from. I realize that there are other situations in addition to unfaithfulness between one or both of the people in the marriage that may justify separating. I'm not so naive to think that there aren't conditions where it happens. It's happened in our family. It's happened to close people that are very close to us. But I still think that Jesus' desire was to squash the excuses of the Pharisees whose intent was to divorce so that they could remarry someone else. They were making excuses. Well, Moses said it's fine. They were saying it's almost a command that Moses gave us. The Pharisees desired something. This goes back to the previous teaching we did last week. The Pharisees desired something that was not theirs to have. The spirit of the law is to take marriage seriously. For it's It's a sacred promise between a man and a woman and God. The promise dovetails into the following teaching, which is the teaching about keeping our promises. I think one of the most sacred promises that we can keep Make in our life is the promise, the vows that we take in marriage. But Christ dovetails that into our next passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. So read along with me on that. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by earth, because earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head. You can't turn one hair white or black. Just say simply, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. So let's go move a little bit beyond just the sacred vow of marriage, the promise we make there, to every promise that we make in life. If the rabbis tend to be permissive in their attitude about adultery and divorce, they were more permissive in their teaching about keeping promises. They had rituals for vows or promises that they would make. They made a big deal that if they swore their pledges by God, God's throne in heaven, or God's footstool on earth, or by the holy city, Jerusalem, where the Messiah would come. You know what Jesus said? Stop it. Stop making excuses or justifying breaking your vows. And you remember last week, in my mind, Jesus was sitting around with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the teachers of religious law, and even at times with his own disciples, And our modern term for that would be moron. And Jesus would say, you morons, you foolish people, don't make excuses for not keeping your vows, and don't think that your vows are somehow more special or holy because you make them on God's throne or his earth, his footstool, or by the holy city in Jerusalem. If you are so foolish that your promises don't mean anything unless you attach them to something considered holy, then don't make promises. Even in our recent history, you hear people say, well, I swear by my mama's grave that I'll keep my promise. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles that I'll keep my promise. Does that make our promises any better or more holy? No, it doesn't. Today we have legal contracts, and no slam to John, he's a lawyer, but they're purposely hard to read and, and to understand so that people can find loopholes to get out of their promises. Now, John would never write that in any contracts he wrote, but I did, I've know of a few lawyers that might do that. And I could go on and on about keeping our promises, But for the sake of brevity, Jesus says, do not make promises unless you are confident that you can keep them. Do not use legal loopholes to hide behind. And I realize in today's cultures, we do need to protect ourselves. But as citizens of God's kingdom, your word should be your bond and your handshake should be your signature. In other words, Jesus says simply, Yes, I will. These are our promises. Or, oh, you won't be able to see it if I put that over there. So we'll do this. No, I won't. Christ says anything beyond this is from the evil one. Yes, I will. No, I won't. That's all you need to know about keeping promises. You'll either keep them or you won't. Don't make excuses. Don't hide behind religious banter in order to keep your promises. And even Jesus' half-brother, James, must have learned his lesson from his older brother. Can you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? Now, I'm the oldest son in our family of 10 kids. And I know what sometimes my brothers have said about me. And I'm sure John probably gets that in his family, too, and others that are older brothers. But James learned this lesson from Jesus. In James chapter 5, verse 12, he says, But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say simply yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. That's all we need to know about keeping promises. Christ broke down this detailed law that the Pharisees wanted to try to burden people with and say, guys, you morons. Just say yes or no. It's not that hard when you're keeping promises. And it's so neat about these teachings about our good intents. They flow one to the other, as I said. But what happens when somebody breaks a promise or a vow to you? How do you feel? What do you want to do? You want to get back at them? I know that's our initial reaction, that we want revenge. And that's why Jesus goes on to teach Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard the law that says, the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer your other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If the soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So we see these final two teachings, this one on revenge and the next one, are the high points on the Sermon on the Mount. This is where the rubber meets the road, as we say. These two teachings are the most admired, yet the most resented, namely the attitude of unconditional love, which Christ calls, calls us to, to show us to treat others well that treat us unkindly, and to love our enemies. Nowhere in the challenge of the sermon is more difficult. Nowhere is the distinctness of our Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. Let me remind you of what we as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, as disciples of Christ, We're no longer to follow the law. Christ fulfilled the law. That was his purpose. What we're to do is to show forth our Christian character. And this is described in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the nine attributes we, as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, are to have. And he goes on to say, "There is no law against such things." It ties right back to the what we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount. So, did you catch that last phrase? As we discussed, Jesus' purpose was completed by his fulfilling of the law when he ushered in God's earthly kingdom. Instead of being preoccupied by a set of rules in our lives, we should determine if our lives produce the fruit that I just read about. That's the that's litmus test. Do our lives produce this fruit? And if so, then we're living rightly. We have Christian righteousness. This lesson teaches us not to seek personal revenge because Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us, as individuals, to take the law into our own hands. He did not want vigilante justice, as we had in the Old West. An eye for an eye is a principle of justice belonging to the courts of law. We must eliminate all retaliation in word and in deed and in all animosity of spirit in our personal lives. We can and must commit our cause to the good and righteous judge, as Jesus did himself. But it is not for us to seek or desire any personal revenge. We must not repay injury, but endure it. And so we are to overcome evil with good. We're to go that extra mile. Now, that is a military term where soldiers could inscript people to carry their gear for a mile, in Christ, but no more. But Christ says, volunteer to do that second mile. He also says to give more than what is required and to also turn the other cheek if necessary. Jesus demands of us as citizens of God's kingdom to have a different personal attitude toward evildoers. Our attitude must be prompted by mercy, not justice, which rejects retaliation so entirely that it risks costing us further suffering. Our character should never be governed by the desire to cause other people harm, but always determining to serve their highest good. Now, if it's a severe offense, and there will be some, then that needs to be handled in the courts of law, not a desire for personal revenge. That's not for us as believers. The fact is that we will not get along with everyone. It's hard to get along with some people, and others may hurt us, It might hurt us deeply, might wound us to our very soul. But Jesus' solution for that is found in his final teaching in Matthew chapter 5, and that's teaching about our love for enemies. And this is Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard the law that says, Love thy neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight both to the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you so much different than anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we have to remember the Israelites were very sectarian. After all, they were God's chosen people. They knew that they were special. It was their assumption that they only had to love their fellow Israelites. Their minds gave them the right to hate all other nations, including the Samaritans, who were even a mixed Jewish ethnic group you know what? We see this form of nationalism in many countries today, and even in the United States, where we think we're better than everyone else. And if we're not careful, we'll verge on hating other nations because they're not like us. This thinking was turned upside down when Christ fulfilled the law. Remember, counterculture Christ calls for us as believers, as citizens of his kingdom, to turn the world right side up. That means to love our enemies. Now, God's kingdom is open to all nations. Before it was a small nation of Israel. Now it's the entire world. All who choose to believe, have believing loyalty in God, are now God's chosen people. It's not reserved for one nation. It's reserved For everyone who chooses to to believe. And as disciples of Christ, we are to love everyone, including those who hate us and those who do not accept Christ. Jesus indicates that our love for our enemies will express itself in deeds, in word, and in prayer. Jesus declares that only then will we prove that we are whose children we are, for only then will we be exhibiting the love like our Heavenly Father has. God has provided common grace to all people. Because in verse 45, it said, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. We don't like that sometimes. We think, well, why is God treating those who are evil with good? because in His common grace, He chooses to do so. God's common grace covers all humans. God's divine love is indiscriminate. It shows equality to a good person and a bad person. Now, all human love, even the highest, the noblest, and the best, is contaminated by some degree of impurities of self-interest. Every decision we make has at least some measure of self-interest in it, Now, we might think, well, I'm being altruistic here. But if you boil it down, every decision we make has some sort of self-interest in it, even if it's to protect ourselves. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we are specifically called to love our enemies, which is impossible without God's supernatural grace. While we may never show this love perfectly, which we won't, we can take heart the God of God's supernatural grace. And we can take comfort in verse 48, the final verse here, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you might say, well, I can't be perfect. I'm far from it. I certainly would say that for myself. But perfection in this verse speaks of a gradual process. It, it begins with our Christian character as described in the Beatitudes. It would be better phrase for our understanding is that you are becoming perfect, even as your Father in Heaven is perfect. So don't lose heart if you don't feel you're perfect. Because believe in me, believe you me, you're not. Neither am I. The perfection is how we're applying the Christian character traits. In our lives, it allows a Christian influence to show forth through being salt of the earth and light to the world. This influence will be manifested through right living, or as it's commonly called, Christian righteousness. As we conclude for today, let our our right living be reflected in the proper understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law, which was his purpose, to establish his kingdom here on earth, which includes the entire human race. Our vocation is not what we do for a living. That is a means to our vocation, which is, as I mentioned last week, to be salt and light, to live right by living the lessons that we learned last week and this week. The lesson on how Christ fulfilled the law, the lesson on anger, Lust or adultery, divorce, promises, revenge, and loving our enemies. Those are the lessons that we need to learn from this passage. Next week, we begin Matthew chapter 6, where we will focus on a Christian's religion. And I want to ask, have you asked yourself this question for next week? Are you real or are you a hypocrite? And that's the lesson we want to ponder for next week. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father, we do thank you for this passage on Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 48. And as we reviewed these seven lessons last week and this week, help us to apply them to our hearts and our lives. We won't be perfect at this, Father, but help us to become perfect. Help that to be our mantra each day to walk a little closer with you that we might live righteously, that we might live right through our good deeds, and that we might show forth to others love, even when they don't deserve it, Father, even when it's difficult for us. And may we always be faithful to the promises that we've made. And may your name be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend. As I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day, as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously.